0: Coming up on the Keto Camp podcast, we have triple board certified practitioner, Dr. Zach Bush. Your fast is literally
1: your go test. It's you putting your your lifestyle and your literal pocketbook in a different position. And so now instead of spending money on those three days five days that you're fasting, that money is going somewhere else. And that contributes me that there's actually an economic, you know, ripple effect of a ketogenic, you know, intermittent fasting or long-term fasting diet that would be interesting to measure. And I, I think you guys are are funneling that money towards lifestyle, you know, resources. The money that you would spend on food in those five days is now being channeled for You know, your gym memberships being channeled for You know, new community around outdoor activities, clubs, you know, all the way down to supplements and the rest. And so I'm intrigued that, if By the simple protest, of I'm not even going to eat today, that is a vote against the common paradigm that's creating
0: pandemics, that's creating destruction of the ecology leading to global warming and the rest. Hey Keto Camper, hope you're doing fantastic today. I have been wanting to get Dr. Zach Bush on the podcast since day one. And the day has come where he has blessed this podcast with his genius. If you have not heard of Dr. Zach Bush, you are going to fall in love with him. We talk about the gut microbiome. Why is it so important to have our gut making the proper connections to deal with viruses bacteria to deal with pathogens why is leaky gut so rampant what's the connection between cancer autism and glyphosate why are we destroying our crops how do we regain our farmland back how do we give back to the farmers so they can regenerate the earth and avoid extinction this is such a powerful interview. Dr. Zach Bush is gonna explain how he predicted that the coronavirus will come out from Wuhan because of what's happening with the pollution in the soil, the degeneration of that soil. He's gonna talk about RNA, micro RNA, and why eating tortured animals like dirty chickens and pigs actually manifests panic attacks in the human body. The the story he shares about the chicken salad and panic attacks and that connection will give you goosebumps. And it's just a fantastic conversation. We're gonna talk about the product Ion, which I take every day and give to my dog, and so much more. I can't wait to share Dr. Zach Bush with you. Before I bring on Dr. Zach Bush, I wanna thank you for being a part of the Keto Camp podcast. Here at Keto Camp, we are on a mission to educate and to inspire 1 billion people on planet Earth just by you listening to this episode it helps that mission become accomplished if you get any value from this episode please text it to a friend share it with somebody post it on your social media you never know the difference you can make by doing that also leave the show a rating and review on apple podcast apple itunes it really helps the show grow take a screenshot of this episode and tag myself and dr bush on instagram when I see it, I will share it. My Instagram handle is at thebenazadi and Dr. Zach Bush's is at Zach Bush MD. Feel free to tag Keto Camp Official as well on Instagram. Just a heads up, I'll be giving a free webinar on mastering your immune system with keto and fasting on Friday, April 24th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. I have room for 500 spots. So if you're hearing this on time, head to benazadiwebinar.com and get signed up for free. I'm also giving away over $200 worth in free gifts. It's first come first serve. Once we hit 500, it'll cap out the Zoom limit. I've also put together some kits for you over at ketocampkit.com of curated supplements and products that I use to boost the immune system to master keto, fasting, sleep, and so much more, head over to ketocampkit.com. I wanna share with you real quick the show sponsor, which is Purity Coffee. Purity Coffee is the highest antioxidant coffee beans I have found. They have tested versus 46 leading brands and have won over each of them on quality and taste. I don't know if you knew this, but coffee is the number one sprayed crop in the world, loaded with pesticides, herbicides, and even mold. This can create leaky gut. This can create inflammation. So we want to make sure our coffee lives up to our high-quality standards of health. You could get Purity Coffee for 10% off and free shipping because you are a listener of the Keto Camp Podcast. Head over to puritycoffee.com and use the coupon code KK10 To get 10% off and free shipping. Again, that is puritycoffee.com. Use coupon code KK10. Let's get into this fantastic discussion with Dr. Zach Bush. Zach Bush is a medical doctor, a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He is an internationally recognized educator on the microbiome as it relates to health disease and our food production systems. Dr. Zach Bush founded Seraphic Group to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health and extend his passion for educating the world on topics such as the state of our soil, including the need to eradicate toxins such as glyphosate from our farming chain and the importance of the gut-brain communication as a vital part of overall health and well-being, Dr. Bush is a respected speaker and authority in the health and wellness space. He travels the world, speaking to medical and farming communities as well as consumers who are interested in taking proactive control over their health. Dr. Zach Bush, welcome to the Keto Camp podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be with your audience.
0: I'm excited. I love your work. You're doing amazing things, and we'll talk all about that. But if you could just go back in time and share your story about how you went from conventional medicine to what you're doing today. It's a very nonlinear path. Uh, Fortunately, we never can plan out our own
1: lives. We create really boring lives. Um, uh, my life you know, started in engineering, actually, and then uh, had an opportunity to go over to the Philippines and uh, and there I worked for a group of international midwife birthing babies in the squats outside of the uh, Manila Philippines and that I had never done anything medical in my life. It was just kind of you know kind of off to do some you know outside the box work. That was so transformational that I came back, dropped out of the engineering program and went into medicine that uh, direction, um initially yeah, going to nursing because I really hated school. I could imagine becoming a doctor. Um, but uh, Went to the nursing pathway, and thought, "Oh, well, maybe there's more flexibility with the nurse practitioner pathway." And then eventually got myself to the fact that I might as well go to medical school, get this thing over with. And then, of course, I knew absolutely nothing about the journey. I didn't know it was going to be 17 years before I actually completed that journey. So, spent 17 years in academia, in different areas. I have. went into internal medicine as an initial subspecialty, then. I uh, was a chief resident at the University of Virginia, which is a teaching position on faculty, teaching that students and residents. Uh, hospital-based allopathic medicine um, got very fascinated with endocrinology in medical school, and then during my internal medicine stuff, got more and more riveted by the possibility of understanding how the body coordinates 70 trillion cells to be, you know, a, a healthful organism, and uh, doing very, you know, tertiary you know, referral center medicine in the hospital, I was starting to see the, the symptoms of a collapsing healthcare system, uh, the symptoms of collapsing rural health on the planet as we were starting to see more and more chronic disease take up our hospitals rather than acute disease management. It's very pertinent actually right now, we hear that the coronavirus is overrunning hospitals, high and, you know, resources. It's not doing anything outside the scope of, of any hospital in the world. What's, What's put these hospitals on the brink of, of lack of resources is how much chronic disease those hospitals are now having to manage. Hospitals should have never managed chronic disease. It's not a good model for chronic disease management. Hospitals, coming out of the technology of, of military experience on battlefields, hospitals were built around battlefield medicine, around trauma and acute illness management, acute heart attack being perhaps you know the closest we can come in the chronic disease realm to something that the, the current medical system does well. Now you take that and you vary it in complications of obesity, such as fatty liver and end-stage liver disease from fatty liver and diabetes and complications of vascular disease, and amputation and chronic infections, all this. That's what swamped our healthcare system. That's not what the healthcare system should be doing. It, that's disease management, and that's what's got our hospital fall at the brink, lack of resources and everything else current coronavirus event, this pandemic that we keep getting all this, you know, PR, this is a huge tragedy. It doesn't even register on the radar screen of problems compared to where our chronic disease epidemics are stressing the system. Um, so that it happens to be, you know, just a good, you know, modern moment example of what was happening to me in my maturation of my career, realizing I needed to go down a pathway that was going to start to address the underneath of this chronic disease burden that was, Really crippling not just the hospital care, but I would see it crippling our entire economy and actually being the downfall of US you know, leadership and, and empire as it stood uh, back in the in, you know, end of the last century. And sure enough, we see the erosion of the US you know, strength and empire, and increasingly we re- require and demand military action to support
0: our economy. Uh, Because we're losing the underpinnings of our our financial stability due to
1: the cost of healthcare, disease management today. So, that whole thing was shifting my paradigm. I decided I wanted to go into endocrinology because it was a pathway to understanding
0: how health happens and how dysfunction within that that coordinating system
1: of the hormones, uh, how disease emerges. And so, I went into endocrinology and metabolism. Um, Initially, my interest was in brain uh, plasticity and how the brain changes to new, to hormonal inputs and uh that was kind of in the you know 2003 to 2012 i guess started 1999 with my first research in that but late 90s early 2000s nobody was talking about that and nobody was talking we were talking about the brain and so the brain was kind of my way into the the ultimately 10 years later into the microbiome By the late 2000s, the microbiome was starting to talk about all the time. But by that time, my funding had dried up for the the brain kind of mood disorder stuff in its relationship to the endocrine system and stress pathways. And the funding was now getting poured from the entire pharmaceutical industries and being redirected from cardiovascular disease into. Uh, cancer. And so uh, Pfizer and a bunch of pharmaceutical companies shut down their entire research divisions and, and research investment arms for cardiovascular disease between 2009 and 2011. You know, so that, that pipeline was drying up and they were rechanneling those funds in cancer research. So I got caught up in that opportunity to get some grant support for research. And my area of interest was developing new novel chemotherapy agents derived from, from nutrients. And so I was working with vitamin A compounds and see how they can kill cancer, and so I was studying apoptosis or programmed cell suicide, and uh, methodologies for turning that on in, in damaged cells. So that was kind of the journey. And in that cancer research, you know, I, I started to realize that you know after three or four years of working with vitamin A, that that stuff actually came from food, and that I should probably go back and teach myself nutrition because I had gotten zero you know adequate nutrition education in my 17 years there. So. Backed up, retaught myself what I thought was nutrition at the time, and uh, a couple of patients introduced me to both book from Neil Barnard's program for reversing diabetes and plant based uh, nutrition to reverse chronic disease. The book is a short read, quick, clip of pages in two days, completely changed my entire perspective on my entire career and, and everything. And so that little book from Neil Barnard was a catalyst for change and understanding my chemotherapy, my endocrine, everything up to the very foundations to where I thought I was going. So redirected in 2010, I left academia, started a nutrition center just to teach plant-based medicine to reverse chronic disease in the Forest County in Virginia. So I set up in this little town of 550 people and decided I was gonna, you know, save save rural Virginia. Not in order to save Virginia, but I'm always I'm like kind of big thinker person is go big or go home kind of mentality. And so I wanted to do that because I knew if I could figure out how to get the small poor rural town to start to take you know, control of its food sovereignty slash health sovereignty, I would have a model that would then scale for the whole world to really prevent the chronic disease collapse of, of humankind. And so that that big, big you know, dream vision started is very simply. It was just me alone in my little plumbing building that I renovated into something that marginally looked like a, a, a clinic. And we started work in 2012, two years into that journey. I started studying soil uh, with a colleague because uh, we were convinced that uh, the plant-based medicine wasn't working anymore. We were pounding these people with kale and cruciferous vegetables, anti-inflammatory diets, and their inflammation market was going up, not down. So we were realizing that the food had become deficient compared to the science of the 1970s that we were basing all of our protocols on. And so we started studying soil. As soon as we did that, it blew open my world because we found some carbon molecules that looked like the chemotherapy I used to develop, but it was sitting there in soil. And when we found out it was being made by bacteria and fungi, it connected all of my dots in my academic world Which is Why was Harvard and, and Stanford showing that the genomics of the bacteria in the gut were predicting cancer occurrence and cancer outcomes in humans? How is that possible? These correlations were being made genetically, but nobody can put those pieces together because our, our model of cancer didn't fit the microbiome. And even to this day, I would argue that all of the cancer centers in the world have continued to fail to consider the microbiome and gut physiology in cancer management. Uh, you know, fortunately, there's functional medicine and alternative medicine and integrative medicine, all these different you know, fields of alternative practices, which you know, are actually not an alternative in any, at all, they actually are based on four thousand years of Chinese medicine and, and nutrition uh, knowledge from the five thousand years of Ayurvedic practices in India and all this. So, there's deep, deep thousand year old wisdom that is in this you know, gut health area, and that's where you guys come in. in you know, Camp is such an interesting space, which is you know this idea of fasting and all of that. So, we move from gut health to microbiome to microbiome and. and patterns of, of uh, mitochondrial medicine, uh, mitochondria being the other half of the endocrinology and metabolism, specialty. So all my research was in the mitochondria and how they turn on aptosis And fasting, of course, doesn't do aptosis, It does something slightly different called autophagy in those long-term fasts. And autophagy is kind of the cleanup of the inside of the cell. So you're, you're digesting. You know, waste material and, and uh, pro, you know misfolded proteins and all kinds of junk that's inside the cell as uh, as nutrient sources uh, when those cells go into long term fasting. So, from autophagy to apoptosis, the mitochondria play a very vital role. They obviously are in direct relationship and communication with the microbiome of your gut, bacteria, fungi, and ultimately, you know, to the point of today uh, with what's going on with the pandemic, the viruses.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about, about fasting since you, you left off there. And you, you referenced a study, University of Virginia, I believe, where they took these participants, and they were college students, and they had 800 calories of a standard American diet. I believe it was pizza. And you tracked how long it took from chewing to processing that out the colon. And it, and it said 14 hours for that meal, so meaning... If we're not at least fasting for 14 hours, if you're eating a standard American diet, what happens in the body? What what kind of backlog happens in the body?
1: Yeah, that's great. Yes, yeah, so Dr. Michael Corner, that was one of the PIs on that research project. And, uh, these young healthy college students were fed uh, a pizza meal at Mellow Mushroom in
0: Charlottesville, Virginia, which is like this kind of cult following pizza place, and was, you know so everybody in the city can relate to a
1: Mellow Mushroom pizza. Like it's some of the best pizza you can eat. It's not like Domino's or, you know, it's not quote-unquote crap pizza. It's, it's good food. You can think, okay, these are the best ingredients we could get if you're going to eat a pizza. And so we gave it to these college kids. And, you know, youth is, is playing strong on the, on the benefit to this study in that the gut metabolism and gut motility of an 18-year-old is much different than the gut motility of a 35- or 40-year-old. We slow down our gut motility dramatically over the course of our lifetime. And so that's why, you know, by the time we're in our 60s, 70s, 80s, constipation starts to become a real issue for many, many people because their gut motility is starting to freeze up. And so we picked, you know, the fastest gut you know, so we could, you know, study. And at 18 years old, as you said, and eating, you know, two slices of melon mushroom pizza at 800 calories, and it takes 14 hours for them to get that, not through their bowels, but just through the small intestine alone. And so that was that a very long journey. Now small intestine just as long, it's you know, certainly a lot longer than the colon, but it's transit time when we realized it was that slow. And these young people really really kind of shifted our, our, our understanding of why the American diet is so prone to inducing things like diverticulosis, which is the outpouching and destruction of the, the macro structure of the colon, and
0: the phenomenon of inflammatory bowel disease and, and irritable bowel syndrome, and all these... Uh, you know, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, U.S. leads in all of these diseases. And this study started
1: to us perspective of, man, there's a lot of stress that goes through if you're eating two or three meals a day that have this high protein content, and the high protein in this case is, is mainly dairy and, and meat in a mix, and then you put next to that a carbohydrate source like GMO weeds that's in the crust of that pizza, and that's destroying the, the gut integrity, the tight junction levels. So you get a leaky gut on top of this very slow-moving mass of protein. This is set up for chronic disease and dysfunction of the intestinal lining, and then subsequently the liver. Its inflammation, its change in hormonal cascades. The liver really dictates the endocrine system in a huge way. So when you start getting stress in the liver, you, you develop fatty liver very quickly. Inflammatory changes cascade through the whole system. The whole vascular system goes inflamed blood brain barrier starts to break down, kidney tube will stop filtering well and you become kind of a a sponge for toxin and inflammation. So that's the phenomenon that we can see with a couple slices of pizza. Fortunately, the study also contained a plant-based arm where they were given a plant-based meal with no processed grains, but whole grains. So it was whole grain-based source of starch, carbohydrate, and protein combined with a bunch of veggies. And so it was a calorie mash, 800 calories, the first thing that the, the individuals reported was shocked over how big of a plate of food that had to be to match the two slices of pizza they'd been given the night before. And so, you know, they, it was the same group cohort that went through both arms. And in that same group of people, it only took 90 minutes for that plant-based diet uh, to go through the small intestine. So you've got 90 minutes versus 14 hours. And now you imagine the stacking of those meals. And so one of the challenges that the ketogenic movement had at its beginning was there was this concept of proteins can heal everything. And, you know, eventually it got to the realization well, no protein has nothing to do with ketosis and protein is all converted to carbohydrate by the liver. And so you're really eating sugar when you eat anything more than maybe 8 or 10 grams of protein, you're really consuming sugar at, at the cellular level. And so we realized too much protein can actually disrupt ketosis severely. And so then we got into the ideas of you know, fat being more important than protein and fasting being more important than than fat when it came to really inducing the the physiological changes we were hoping to achieve with ketosis. That study, I think, is indicative of why the American diet is so inflammatory and, you know, the opportunity that we have when we go to a whole food, plant-based diet doesn't mean you're vegan, it just means that you're eating a ton of real, unprocessed, you know, whole grains, Starches and carbohydrates. That mix is magical for the small intestine. Gut motility is a direct measure of neurologic function. So when you see a ramped up ninety-minute transit time for the small intestine, you know that the whole neurologic system is happy at that moment. You've got nerves that are firing, muscle groups, small smooth muscle uh, controlling the small intestine. All that smooth muscle coordination is happening without any, you know, vagal stress. The, the vagus nerve obviously running all of the you know, functions from the back of your throat all the way through your lungs and respiratory drive, your heart, your, your cardiovascular drive, heart rate, things like that, Your the tension of your blood vessels, your blood pressure, uh, being uh, getting feedback from that vagus nerve all the way down, of course, into gut motility, uh, innervation of the stomach, pancreas, liver, gallbladder, all the way down into uh, the descending colon, or I'm sorry, the ascending colon, transverse colon. All of that is innervated by a single nerve. And so when we see the vagus nerve really pop in action and really do you know unperturbed rest and digest activity, we can be very confident that the neurologic system is happy. And in contrast, you see that they shut down and falter and it takes 14 hours to move the same number of calories through the gut, you know that there's a lot of neurologic confusion going on at that moment. You've sent the neurologic system somehow into a fight or flight state that freezes the gut motility. And so your, your fight-or-flight state being your sympathetic nervous system, when it gets activated, gut motility stops. And so you don't want to be digesting food while you're trying to channel energy to the muscle to run away from you know, whatever is threatening your life. So that fight-or-flight state is somehow getting turned on by this protein overdose, by this inflammatory you know, event of processed grain and uh, processed carbs slash you know, heavy protein load uh, passing the gut uh, slowly.
0: Yeah, and you and you add to that what's happening with the quarantine and the sh- those stress in our minds, that's also creating that. And the food that's available is the cheap processed food, which is the last thing we want to have uh, during the quarantine. Do you want to touch a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, my feeling is the quarantine is the stupidest approach that we could possibly do to public health in general. The last thing you want to do to human beings is isolate them. It is the worst thing for our mental health. It is the worst thing for our endocrine system because as soon as you stop moving your insulin levels go up your sleep cycles shut down you know it's just a horrific thing to be to increase the amount of couch time that americans are already overdosing on not to mention the amount of screen time that americans are getting right now is just through the freaking roof And so everything from, you know, the Instagram account to creating their memes, to sitting there binging on Netflix, I don't think we've ever seen more screen time consumed by humanity than in the last four weeks. So we are absolutely screwing over our public health by this concept of quarantine. We can discuss later, hopefully not at all, but if if we need to, we can discuss, you know, what about the virus and all that stuff. But in some ways, literally what we're talking about right now is way more important than public health uh, and to your own personal health or family health than anything about COVID. COVID is not important as a health threat. What COVID is important for is an indication to the world of what have we done wrong to create every three years another pandemic of a coronavirus or otherwise. Uh, this is the third you know, massively life threatening coronavirus that we've created just in the last few decades. SARS, MERS, and and out of different parts of the world, you know, SARS, of course, out of a portion of China there, and MERS out of the Middle East, and now a different portion of China coming in with this coronavirus. So what are we doing to suddenly accelerate pandemics over the last, you know, three decades, and the obviously food system? And so the food system has destroyed the ecology of the planet faster than any other technology we've ever developed. Chemical food and commercial agriculture, as it's called now, is the most destructive you know, chemical force on the planet, and you know, I lectured last year at Sun Valley Wellness Festival, showing them where in China the next pandemic would come. From. I didn't think it was going to happen in eight months, but sure enough, eight months later, we have a pandemic. We have Hubei province, dead center of the agricultural zone uh, of China, where the highest spring of, of roundup and antibiotics is being you know applied to the to the food industry there. And so, in 2019, all of Hubei province got international attention before it got attention for the coronavirus for being one of the most toxic regions within China uh, due to agricultural and manufacturing uh, toxins that have built up in their water supply, soil systems, blah, blah, blah. And so there was this huge you know, concern over the, the public health of the Then suddenly coronavirus appears and wipes out a bunch of people. Not at all spread. That's exactly what has to happen. Because viruses are not actually uh, germs and bacteria. You know, kind of follow the germ philosophy, but viruses are just genetic information. When you see our new virus, it's just new genetic information responding to the stress of the environment. And so that's you know, a fascinating look at what we're creating with this food system. So as you guys are doing your keto diets and your fasting, you're in direct opposition to the biggest problem on earth right now. So it's very exciting. Your fast is literally your protest, it's you putting your your lifestyle and your literal pocketbook in a different position, and so now instead of spending money on those three days, or five days that you're fasting, that money is going somewhere else, and that intrigues me. That there's actually an economic, you know, ripple effect of a ketogenic, you know, intermittent fasting or long-term fasting diet that would be interesting to measure. And I, I think you guys are, are funneling that money towards lifestyle, you know, resources. The money that you would spend on food in those five days is now being channeled towards you know your gym memberships being channeled towards you know new community around outdoor activities, clubs, you know, all the way down to supplements and the rest. And so I'm intrigued that if, by the simple protest of I'm not even gonna eat today, that is a vote against the common paradigm that's creating pandemics, that's creating destruction of the ecology leading to global warming and the rest. So uh, what you guys are doing now is so a very interesting application you know, with you know, the obvious biohacking
0: stuff that you guys been doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the, one of the main complaints, I, I don't know if "complaints" is the right word, but comments that I get is when, when I recommend organic food, food that hasn't been sprayed with pesticides and herbicides, I get the comment, how can I afford that? How can I spend the extra money on that? And to me, it, it, how could you not do that. But here's what I say. I say, hey, when you practice intermittent fasting, you're going to save money. And that money could be applied to a better quality of food because what we eat, we become. Our cells are made of the food we put in our body. And you shared something. And let's see if you remember what I'm about to share with you. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years. And then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance B-E-N, and the number four, international shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. I was watching one of your talks from a few years ago, and it gave me goosebumps. You actually are the only person that I've seen in video lecture that has made me cry, by the way. Uh, But (laughs) that's a compliment. (laughs) But in this lecture, you were talking about a patient you had who kept having panic attacks after lunch. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Interesting. What was happening with her?
1: Yeah, so um, with the biology that I'm about to tell all of you, I want you to start looking at your life around this and the behavior of human beings in general in relation to what they just ate. And I I think you're going to realize some really profound things about human behavior and the immediate effects of a meal. And what was happening to this woman is she was consistently having massive, you know, overwhelming panic attack about, you know, 30 in the afternoon on three or four days a week. It was very common. And if you read a medical textbook, even I remember the first time I read this back in medical school, it kind of freaked me out because the number one symptom that they report in a panic attack is the sensation of impending doom. And when you read that in a medical textbook, it's like, whoa, like, what is that feeling like? I mean, for me, it's like walking into Target. I have this overwhelming sense of impending doom, and I start to sweat a little bit, and I don't want to go into that space. But it's deeper than that. There's like this sense of like, I am going to die, and I don't know why. And so panic attack leading with the sensation of impending doom was what this woman was describing, classic anxiety sore panic attack. She had some generalized anxiety in the background, but not... Such that she was on meds or anything like that. It was more these acute panic attacks were, were the driving plate And so yeah, I was intrigued by the time of day and my endocrine brain. I'm like, oh, I am okay. at that point, cortisol's dropping, you've got, you know, your insulin glycemic index changing, your liver starting to do some interesting metabolism. So I was like, stuck in this hormone side of the equation. And then it came to me through that, I was like, well, What do you eat for lunch? And she said, well, you know, I, I'm pretty predictable. She's like, no, I eat this rice pilaf dish a lot. And then a few days a week, I eat uh, a chicken salad. And I have like, my favorite place. And, you know, they, they do a really good chicken salad. I'm like, well, that's interesting. I was like, have you noticed it? Is it on the days of your chicken salad? that you're having this experience. And she's like, I don't know. I don't think so. And then calls back a couple weeks later. She's like, it's the chicken salad. And so that got me starting to think about, you know, again, for quite a while I went down the hormone. But then I was teaching in a totally different, you know, mindset. I was teaching microRNA and the new science of, of genomic stress and how we express this through something called microRNA. And I was teaching on the microbiome and that, you know, 30% of the microRNA in our bloodstream at any given moment, which are these stingling messengers out of our DNA that translates into these little microRNA and they go our bloodstream, they go into our sweat, they go into our saliva, and they express out into the environment around us. And the microRNA affects the decisions of the genes within your body as to what they're going to produce. You only have 20,000 genes, but you have 280,000 proteins that build a human body. So somehow those 20,000 genes have to decide which of those 280,000 proteins and what body they're going to build today. And fascinatingly, this microRNA is, seems to be one of those major influencers. And so some new science have come out saying you know, that 30% of the microRNA micro in your bloodstream is coming from the bacteria and fungi in your gut, the skin, and your environment. But another five, maybe 10% of your microRNA is actually coming from the food you just ate. And that's when all the bells went off in my head for this woman. I was like, holy I'm sorry for cussing to all of you it was so intense to realize that this chicken was carrying genetic information about its last few minutes or hours of life into that chicken salad. And so that chicken now contains microRNA that are signaling the stress response of being a chicken. Now I want you to think about what it looks like to be a chicken right now in the modern protein industry. It means you were born six weeks ago. You have been in a cage smaller than your body, so you can't turn around. Your beak has been clipped off so that you can't peck yourself to death. You are fed only a single brain that's been genetically modified and drenched in, in a chemical that opens up all of your membranes. You have leaky gut, leaky brain, leaky kidney tubules. You're physiologically inflamed from the first second of life, and uh, you're being on literally from the, the chickens above you. You're in a factory where you've never seen daylight, you've never scratched on real earth, you've never seen what grass looks like or tastes like or or smells like, and this is your your life for six weeks, and then you're butchered and it has a boiler chicken. In that short six-week lifespan, a third of your your compatriots have died of invasive salmonella and coli from the toxicity of the stool uh, because your food is laced with antibiotics and pressuring uh, towards these invasive drug-resistant microbes, so that's being a chicken today. So which microRNA are being turned on at the moment that that chicken goes to to slaughter is literally a sense of impending doom. Nobody cares about me. I'm in complete terror. I don't even know why I'm here. I have no purpose. And if you now reach the the symptoms of a panic attack, you just coded in the genetic code in the microRNA signaling of that piece of chicken that that woman, as soon as she consumes it, hour and a half, you know, not 60 to 90 minutes later, you've gone halfway through the small intestine. You've absorbed that microRNA information into the woman. Her genome is now responsive to that. And now she starts triggering the genetic decisions to prepare her for impending human death. And it has absolutely nothing to do with her life and her husband and her kids and all of this stuff. And her, her panic attack, much like many other panic attacks, yeah. always came out of her most relaxed point of the day kids are off school doing well she's gotten through all her to-do lists in the morning it's kind of like her her self time you know in the afternoon before the kids get home from school so she's often doing her own self-care she just went to the gym she'd be like her most pleasant part of the day and she's having that because she's suddenly getting coded by that so that that journey now I look at somebody in the news and I like watching our president because I'm always trying to guess when was his last meal and what did he eat? And and the amount of inflammation that he has in his verbiage, the amount of redness that he has in his face, all of these things are going to be directly related to the microRNA signaling that he is getting from his environment. When people, as he surrounded themselves by in the last few hours, all of these things are going to influence that. And at moments, you know, the reason the president is nice is because he has absolutely no filter. So it's like watching human biology with no frontal lobe filter whatsoever. He simply just spends it all all the time. Whatever he's thinking, whatever he's feeling, he just wants everybody to feel it with him. And so he's a very awesome biologic experiment. And and you can like watch this guy go through, you know, from minute to minute, a a journey of his own kind of emotional experience. And you can see some insecurities and all this, but you can really get the flavor of the emotion he's feeling in that moment. And sometimes you frankly get like this kind of jovial kind of kidding you know kind of innocent feel from him for a moment and they're like oh wow that's that's a different you know donald trump right there and then moments later you get this like you know tyrannical anger and everything else and it's like what is that coming from And, and you know what is that flavor and so i now i want you to apply that to yourself i want you to think about when are you the most short with your loved ones when are you the most out of energy emotionally when are you starting Is it possible that your food and its germ to your plate is influencing your macro behavior? And the answer to the side level is definitely it does. The question is, is that stress the food system is expressing to you within your clinical range of coping methods? Do you have enough anti-inflammatory effect? Do you have enough lifestyle and relaxation practices in your life to be able to to absorb that level of stress coming in from that genetic information of in your food system. And of course it's not just limited, limited, limited to protein history. It's certainly horrific to be a pig. I think the worst is chicken, but second definitely is swine. Uh, being a pig is a, a horribly tragic thing today. And then third would probably be the beef industry. Beef industry is markedly you know, friendlier than the other two, but it's still horrific in a lot of, especially the US feedlot system. But uh, you know the factory, you know situation is one thing on that side. But on the other side of the equation, we have the vegetable, and I like to think about corn. Like corn is such a beautiful plant. Like I don't know if you've ever been to the Midwest, but if you've ever walked through a, a towering field of corn, corn it is really spectacularly beautiful. It's a really beautiful plant, except it's very monotonous. And so when you're in the middle of a ten thousand acre farm in the Midwest, you get this overwhelming sense of programming like you feel like you're part of a military state or something because there is zero biodiversity on the ground literally there's not a weed growing for as far as you can see under the canopy of those corn because the whole field is spraying the ground up consistently to keep all the weeds dead and all you're allowing is the genetically modified roundup ready crop to grow up through that dead soil and so when you're down in that cornfield you have a sense of like oh my god this is literally you know the, the factory chicken farm Version on corn. I think corn. I know corn biologically thrives when it has an intact fungal community at its root system that's attached to its three sisters. You know, the the Native American population was famous for growing an incredible agricultural system before the the Western Europeans showed up. We think that oh, they were just hunting scavengers. No, they had an incredibly you know complicated and, and very well established agricultural system that allowed you know tribes to live stationary or more hunter gatherers they, they were stationary tribes that uh, really had robust agriculture system they had figured out the biodiversity in the crop created more robust returns and so they grew the three sisters which was corn peas and squash you know next to each other to benefit of each of those species and so corn would obviously do better with biodiversity around it even we know now that the weeds on a farm are very critical to the uh, carbon cycle, nutrient cycle, soil, and everything else. If you keep killing the weeds, you destroy the, the ecosystem uh, biodiversity and the bio-nutrient uh, base that they would create. So whether it's a quote-unquote weed or an invasive or whatever you want to title these plants, biodiversity is always the secret of success. And so uh, I think your corn is just as stressed out genetically and sending just as many stress signals to the environment in that GMO crop environment as your, your chicken belt weed is in the in that, that chicken pot. So we have a stressed out food system in a third of the world. 70% of the world, unfortunately, is still fed by a peasant farmer. Monsanto and Bayer now and all these companies are doing as much work as they can now to take over to developing the development of world agriculture. And that's tragic. We're losing you know hundreds of thousands of farms around the world now uh, annually. In the US, we lose 8,000 farms a year, uh, family farms to, to factory farming. So we're losing you know the entire foundation of food sovereignty and food food system stability uh, to this very unstable, you know, factory farm environment, where we can see, like last year, 18 million pounds of beef got recalled in the United States alone for toxic E. coli and, and deaths from the E. coli in the meat. When you have an industry that that has to withdraw 18 million of the pounds, just you know, isolate you know, a couple of cows, but the system is so integrated and so massive where they're killing 5,000 cattle a day in a single building, and it doesn't take long before you've hit 18 million pounds contamination or uh, containment necessity. So we have a very vulnerable, very fragile food system now built around, you know, the scaling of, of conventional agriculture.
0: And all of this is leading to the epidemic we see with with cancer, with autism. I mean, could you speak a little bit more about that and then talk about Farmer's Footprint and your initiative to restore the farmland and the great work that you're doing with Farmer's Footprint?
1: Yeah. So, the, you know, it's so fascinating to be alive. I want all of you listening to this to know that you are here on purpose. And there's no way that you're not here on purpose because you showed up at an extreme tipping point moment in human history. Homo sapiens sapiens, the fossil record at least, has been around 200,000 years. In that 200,000 years, we've been a consumptive and destructive species since our beginning. If you haven't read the book, Sapiens, it's almost a must-read. It's a fascinating look at the kind of anthropologic, historical sequence of Homo sapiens on the planet and how we have systematically hunted to extinction anything larger than us as of almost you know, ten thousand years ago, we'd already achieved that. So we are very good at extincting species around us for our own preservation. Over the last forty years, when we shifted a, uh, that kind of warlike mentality against biology around us, with the, split to the micro system, we started killing the micro infrastructure of, of soil and uh, ecological you know systems in the nineteen seventies, and we did that through turning our wartime development of Agent Orange uh, developed you know, during Korea and Vietnam to uh, an agricultural technology. So we shifted organophosphate technology for killing jungles and warfare to killing weeds in your backyard in 1974. Uh, Vietnam War, ending 1973, desperately needed a new, new way to get organophosphate development into a marketplace they couldn't sell their, their millions of pounds of Of Asian orange every year, so Monsanto previously with Asian orange now switches over to a new patent on a new organophosphate that would be called glyphosate, which would become the active ingredient Roundup. And then since that 1976 debut, actually, you know, with that first widespread distribution of the agricultural industry in 1976, that was the very first year that we saw swine flu jump into humans. And so yeah, it's a very interesting phenomenon where we created an artificial you know, or you know, toxic ecologic injury at the microbiome level, and an immediate response was a new virus that would kill millions of people. And so now you accelerate. And so that was 1976. We saw uh, avian flu hit humans for the first time uh, just a few years later, years later, in the late 70s. And then uh, there would be a pause, and then you know, maybe due to just lack of surveillance. But then uh, 1996 hits, and we start to see you know, pandemics of H1N1 H1 type flu strains. Uh, and then we would see the SARS in 2001, 2002, and so and then accelerating since then. So, what you can see is with each kind of exportation of chemical farming to different environments, we have further toxified the environment. And uh, interestingly, the swine flu of 1976 came straight out of the U.S. and European agricultural system. It didn't come out of China. We didn't develop a Chinese-based pandemic until 2001 with SARS. And that's very interesting to me because that's, you know, exactly the era starting in the late 1990s, moving into the early 2000s, that the U.S. started to export, you know, GMO farming throughout the world. 1996 was its debut in U.S. and, and Europe. And then uh, we exported that to Asia over, over the next decade as well as Europe and the rest. And so, you know, we saw SARS in 2001 and 2002 and then MERS we see in 2010 or 12. And MERS was kind of coming out of the Middle East and so the Middle East was the last territory of infiltration of, of these chemical farming practices and agriculture injuries. So that's kind of you know, pertinent to Corona, but we can see tracking in the same time period chronic disease emergence. So you mentioned autism. In 1975, the year before, we really see broad application of around. We had 1 in 5,000 children with autism. Today we have 1 in 30 or 1 in 36, depending on who you read. And so we've gone from 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 36. There's a lot of debate whether Well, maybe we just missed autism back in the 1970s. You know, maybe we just recognize it more. So it's not really an epidemic. It's just we well, that can be true, because doctors are pretty... I'm very willing to, to believe that we missed something massive. What I'm not willing to believe is that mothers of 1976 somehow missed that their children had autism. A mother knows very well if their child has a learning disability or you know dyslexia, let alone something as severe as autism. So we didn't miss this in 1976, because I trust mothers just as conscientious and aware of their child's condition then, as they are now, and it's always the mothers that bring autism to the attention of physicians. We have no screening for autism. You know, if, if it was some new screening process, process that we put into elementary school, and then we find all this autism, fair. We don't have anything like that. It's always the parents that bring to the attention, or the teachers that bring to the attention of the physicians that there's a problem here. Can you diagnose this? And, and so, we have a true epidemic of autism, we have a true epidemic of, sort of attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder which now affects one in 10 children formally, but we think it's more like one in six children in the United States. Um, We have one in in four children faced with obesity by the time they're an adult. We have one in three, you know, in pre-diabetes, diabetes state. Like, you know, the numbers are just obscene all the way down to major depression, which is now one in two adults. And we see more and more children suffering from depression. There's actually whole pediatric seminars that, you know, Physicians and pediatricians travel to all over the world, from all over the world to go to these seminars now on how to start antidepressants for children under the age of two. That is freaking ridiculous. Like, that should not exist, and certainly didn't exist when I went through medical school in the 1990s. We had never heard of major depression in a two-year-old, and let alone a one-year-old. And so now we literally have pediatricians starting kids, you know, as soon as they're starting to walk on antidepressants. And so it's a very, very terrifying you know, emergence of of disease epidemic in our children. Leukemia and lymphoma is through the roof. Brain cancers, primary brain tumors in children has gone exponential since the 1990s. And so we see all of these chronic diseases from kind of the neurologic to the autoimmune to the cancer, all happening in children under the age of 17. Recent Medicare and Medicaid surveys are suggesting that 52% of kids in the United States have a chronic disorder by the time they're uh, 17. And so that's starving. And a lot of those dysfunctions are allergies to their environment. Our children can't even tolerate food. Our children can't tolerate breathing air that has pollen in it. If we can't tolerate eating food and breathing real air, we have a serious problem with human biology. And so over these last few decades, we've we've lost the capacity for biological wellness on Earth. And so this whole concept of you know Elon Musk taking us to Mars, I think it might take something that drastic. If we don't change directions of the human species, we're not gonna to tolerate biodiversity because you know we have lost the ability for relationship and we're gonna die much younger and of much more horrible diseases as we become more and more monocular or, or mono uh, genomic in our daily experiences. And so we're our children are now manifesting this, this intolerance to the planet that Homo sapiens you know, developed in over two billion year period. And so we have done something catastrophic over these last forty years. So with our soil science, we developed you know a dietary supplement line called Ion Biome. There's Ion gut health, there's ion sinus and there's a, a whole product line coming out now for skin and other systems. There you go. And so ION became our educational way of bringing this cutting-edge soil science of how the microbes help human cells kick into a regenerative repair state. We've channeled all of our, our profits from that into uh, our nonprofit, as well as some other you know, root-cause solution uh, subsidiaries
0: within our companies to figure out how to solve the problems that are, that are you know, racing towards us
1: with our own extinction. And so the nonprofit we started is called Farmer's Footprint, I appreciate you bringing that up. Ben, uh, it's uh, been a really incredible journey. We started this thing, we are going to shoot a documentary on the Mississippi River, which takes on about 85% of the roundup that we spray in this country, consolidates it in one river. The uh, last 90 miles of that river runs between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, one of the forest areas of our country, but uh, is now the sickest part of our country. It is the highest rates of cancer in the entire developed world. The, the medical world refers to this as Cancer Alley, that 90 miles of Mississippi. And so you know, the World Health Organization you know, finally comes out and says, glyphosate well, might be a carcinogen. It's like, no, we proved it in this country. We can show you the water concentrations. We can show you what happens to a population of complex genetics, and they all get cancer at the end of this river. And so you know, don't tell me this is a theoretical or a possibility. This has already happened. We did this. And the interesting thing, before 1996, the Deep South had no leadership in cancer death. All the cancer death was in the Northeast and a little bit of prostate cancer in the Northwest, but it was never in the Deep South. Now it's Louisiana, Tennessee, Mississippi, all of those Deep South, right in the watershed of the entire Mississippi River. That's our epicenter of cancer. Between 1996 and 2007, we did that in just 11 years. We did that, and so it's an extraordinary story of destruction of human biology on the tail end of the destruction of ecology, and so we've, all of our funds going back into this now nonprofit, teaching farmers to become a part of a new economy, uh, transitioning from chemical warfare against the world and against the, the microbiome of their soils to a regenerative, cooperative, co-creative process for their soil system. And the exciting thing is Mother Nature shows her sort of grace to us here in that, these farmers can see vitality returning to their soil in a single season. If they just stop spraying and stop plowing their field for one year, they see soil vitality, earthworms, microbial return, you know, resistance against weeds, resistance against pests coming in in a single year. Here they were spending, you know, bank loans worth of money on inputs of herbicides and pesticides and losing a battle. They simply stopped fighting, and Mother Nature delivered all of her biodiversity and solutions in a single year. And now they don't have any invasive weeds because biodiversification of their cover crops took over uh, that problem, and they no longer have pressure from single species of insects or weeds because they've created a biodiversity ecology, which is always balanced and doesn't require human intervention and micromanaging enough. So it's been a really exciting journey. To find out that the farmers are ready to make this transition is very exciting. I think medicine is gonna be way behind. The doctors are not gonna lead this revolution. I've given up on trying to convince my colleagues to become, you know, the, the, the solution. Certainly there's a lot of physicians that are being part of the solution. But I think, you know, as an industry where Western medicine is not going to be the leader here. But fortunately, I think big ag is collapsing and the agriculture industry can revolutionize and take us back to those pre-1974 levels of disease.
0: So I just wanted to just tie this all together so the audience understands that cancer, autism, this epidemic of disease, viruses, are all linked to Mother Nature. It's linked to the earth. It's linked to how we're farming and how bad we're doing our farming. We're creating these monocultures that are creating—well, monocrops creating monocultures in the gut, leading to disease— essentially making us allergic to the food that we're feeding ourselves, correct? Is that, is that a fair thing to say? Uh, so by teaching these farmers how to farm the right way and build these crops the way that they're meant to be to, to grow, we could eat this food, we could repair the body, we could give the body what it wants, and we could essentially reverse the trends, correct?
1: That's right. Yeah, just, just like that field recovering in a single season, your gut is an organic garden, and when you start to foster carbon cycling and microbial diversity in your gut, you're going to see the same resilience. Gut is an organic garden, and so the same rules and recovery rate that we see in a farm happens in your gut. And so if you will start to focus on micronutrient micro-nutri- diversity, fiber diversity in your diet, um, you know all of this is going to start fostering that repair of the gut microbial diversification and the invasive weeds, you know, eat a small bowel overgrowth, all these things that are now kind of hard parcel start to go away. What we're showing is that if we take this, you know, my, microbial intelligence, the communication network between the bacteria and fungi, and we amplify that, that product ion that you were showing earlier, we have a sister product that's being produced for soil systems on large scale agriculture that are being tested with very large hemp growing and vineyards around the country right now to show that if we amplify microbial messaging, we can, you know, by 10x, accelerate the recovery of the soil system and the yield that you see from our plants. The tomato plant study that we did in the fall was pretty amazing. We did 3.2 pounds of tomatoes out of uh, conventional agricultural uh, tomato vines with nitrogen, potassium, fertilizers, blah, blah, blah. We then said no fertilizer, let's just the communication network between bacteria and mineral nutrients that they derive. And we got 35 pounds of tomatoes out of single vines. And so you went uh, almost a 10x leap in productivity. That's what happens in the gut. What does 10x yield look like for you? It's 10x energy levels for you. It's 10x nutrient delivery. It's 10x vibration. That's what it is. It's,
0: it's 10x or your, your true personality, essentially.
1: Absolutely. And your productivity. And so you'll see your sense of purpose, your sense of self-identity your sense of this does emerge over the year and a half, you know, following this start, just like it does on the farm. And so in my clinic, it took us years. We started working on this, you know, thing, you know, seven years ago, years of seeing this in clinic where a year into the process, this woman comes in and you know, crying hugs me. I'm so happy. doctor, the happiest moment of my life. I what happened? Well, last week I left my husband. He's been abusing me for 30 years. And it, Having watched that a few times, it took me quite a while to realize, my God, this stuff reveals the micro-boundaries that helps reveal the gut lining, and the vascular lining, the blood-brain barrier. Those healthy boundaries at the molecular level, then of course are going to lead to healthy macro-boundaries in your life. You're going to start to draw those emotional boundaries and those spiritual boundaries, and your sense of self-identity will become strong. If you're listening to this to being like, I feel like I'm chasing my health, I'm biohacking and I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what my purpose is. How do I participate in anything? It's likely got to do with this journey into finding self. And finding self is going to be found through microbiome biodiversity that will then support this macro experience of who you are and what you're here to do. You're here at the tipping point of history. Our own extinction is seen 70 years out. We can change everything. You must have shown up to be part of that. And I'm just so you know, passionate passionately excited that you're here as part of that solution. Um, as part of that solution-based purpose within humanity as a whole.
0: Amen, Dr. Bush. We are out of time, and I want to give the audience a chance to contribute to this. I have been personally contributing to Farmer's Footprint and using Ion, which used to be called Restore, now Ion, both drinking it and using the nasal before bed. My dog also takes it, and it's no coincidence, by the way, that I feel right now that I am living on purpose with my purpose, and I wake up every day excited about what I can do to create and educate the world. And I've been taking this for over a year and a half, so I don't think that's a coincidence. Where can they go to learn more about Farmers Footprint?
1: Farmersfootprint.us is the website there. You can see the first of the the documentary series that we're, we're building. Uh, it's a 20-minute film about an extraordinary family in the Midwest that's uh, making this transformational change for the food system at the micro level with a message that can really scale to the world. So farmerswithprint.us will find that, and ways to support us in our mission. We have very exciting initiatives starting to take a hold around the world. We'll be releasing a much bigger version of the nonprofit in the next few months as we start to tackle not just soil, but soil, water, and air systems around the world. Uh, for a healthier planet, a healthier future. So we'd love your support and passion for you as well as the company and anybody else you think would want to be so properly involved in the future of
0: Thank you. We'll put all those links in the notes of this podcast and YouTube video, and I also have a special coupon for you all to get eye on. Those of you in my Keto Camp Academy, I just launched a new membership add-on for this dashboard it's a five dollar add-on and a hundred percent of the proceeds for your membership goes to farmer's footprint so those of you in the academy if you contribute if you add that to your membership 100 of that goes to farmer's footprint dr zach bush thank you for your brilliance thank you for always showing up i love the work that you're doing i support it and i'm grateful for this opportunity to chat with you and i can't wait to do it again
1: thank you so much for the support synergy and passion your sense purpose and you've created a powerful place thank you Thanks for including in.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode with the brilliant Dr. Zach Bush. If you want to watch the video version of this interview with Dr. Bush, head to the YouTube channel, the Keto Camp YouTube channel over at youtube.com slash ketocamp to get the products that we mentioned, the Ion, the nasal spray, this amazing product that I've been using for over a year and a half, then head to the link In the notes of this podcast, we put it at the top there, there is a link where you could get these products delivered right to your door so you could give the body these connections, and it all starts with the gut. This is a great product to take every single day and give it to your pets as well. It helps with leaky gut. It helps close tight junctions, and it really helps, as we've talked about, you become your greatest potential, your true personality, and it helps you deal with the depleted soils out there and the glyphosate and chemicals that are being sprayed on our foods. This is a very important product. So head to the link in the notes of this podcast to claim it today. Take a screenshot of this episode and tag myself and Dr. Bush on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at thebenazadi, and Dr. Bush's is ZachBushMD. Feel free to tag official as well. When I see that, I will share it on my story. If you got value from this episode, please share it with a friend. Text it to somebody right now and take a minute to leave the show a rating and review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher. It really helps the show grow and get to more hands. A reminder for you, we're a few days away from my free uh, webinar on mastering the immune system. Head to benazadiwebinar.com and I'll see you on there. I want to let you know about my favorite keto snack in the entire world these Paleo Valley beef sticks. They are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. Many beef sticks and beef jerky companies out there claim that their product is grass-fed, but usually they're finished on grains. Paleo Valley, they live up to my high quality of standards, and I personally love the original flavor. I can't get enough of that. My girlfriend loves the teriyaki flavor. If we're running errands, traveling on the road, This is the perfect sidekick to keep us on course with our keto results. We have an exclusive deal for keto campers to get 15% off your entire first order by heading over to paleovalley.com, entering the coupon code KKA to get 15% off. That is paleovalley.com, coupon code KKA. Thank you so much for listening to this entire episode. Of the Keto Camp podcast. You'll hear me on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice.